We'll be looking at three passages. We'll start with our passage we've been working on as far as memorizing. That's the one that is the basis of our series in Exodus chapter 34. And then we will be going to other passages, uh, two of them. But uh, if you take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 34, reminding ourselves of this statement that God gave, which was a display of his glory. As, uh, we oftentimes think of God and his glory, that something miraculous has to happen. It has to be a sign in the sky or something like that. And when God wants to display his glory, he oftentimes does it in ways that we can grasp, and that is through the word and through words. And so when Moses needed to see God's glory for encouragement, this is the statement that God gave to him. And uh, this is a statement that the nation of Israel used throughout their history. Uh, over, uh, we know over 1,500 years, they used this statement uh, to understand God, how they ought to respond to him and be able to do that. And so we're going to start off in the middle of verse number six, uh, this statement made by the Lord, declaring his glory and uh, go right down to verse number seven. So let's start with the verse, the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abundant in goodness and truth keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the father upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation. Now we've been looking at this passage and we've used it in multiple ways. And I want us to, in your Bible, turn to Nehemiah chapter 9. We've looked at it in multiple different ways, and the, the first ways that we looked at it was just how it was immediately used in Israel's history when they had the sin of the golden calf and when they had the, the failure of uh, the nation, and uh, they had this failure of the nation where they didn't go into the promised land. They were supposed to go into Kadesh Barnea, and they failed to do this, and, and uh, they ran from the promised land in some ways. Uh, and God used this statement about himself. Moses uh, recalled it, that God was like this. But then we got into the Psalms and looked at how David used these Psalms. He used the, or the, the statement of God. He used the one uh, in Psalm 86 just to give us an example of how to pray, knowing these characteristics of God. And then Psalm 103 and Psalm 145 gave us uh, how to praise God when we know these characteristics of God. We ended uh, with Psalm 145, uh, and the thought was is that God is good to all. Because some might think that a statement about God like this is only for a select group of a people, or applies to only a select group of people. And we looked at uh, the story last time when we had a chance. We looked at the story of Jonah and Nahum where you had uh, this story of Jonah who is wanting the obliteration. I mean, really, that's what he's looking for. He's looking for the obliteration of the nation uh, of uh, Assyria, their capital city, uh, Nineveh. And uh, you had this opportunity that Jonah thought in his mind that God could get rid of an enemy of the nation of Israel. But when God spares the nation of Assyria, Jonah claims this, I didn't want to preach to him because I knew you were this way. You are a God who is full of mercy and grace and that you're long-suffering and you are this way. And 
God explains the fact that Noah really, or excuse me, that Jonah had no right to be upset, that God has a right to relent, or as we said, to Nahum, uh, to, to back off. When individuals repent, whether they are from the nation of Israel or whether they're from some other nation, God applies his character to them. But you see on the reverse side of that, in the, the story of Nahum, that prophet who his name means uh, to relent, to back off, or to be a comforter. In that story, it starts off, and it is that God now judges the city of Nineveh. You have the second half of that statement, that God does visit uh, the iniquity of the fathers upon the children, the children's children of the third and fourth generation. That God does not just let sin continue on uh, unpunished. And so you see that God holds to both sides, that he is gracious and compassionate. He's moved in our, our sorrow, and he does this, and he does it for all people, but yet he still judges sin, no matter what nationality you are. But then you, you see that uh, you have two passages of Scripture, and we're going to deal with one first because I, the second one is uh, one that I want to close with. But you have two passages of Scripture, one here in Nehemiah and one in the book of Joel, where we find out how to use the statement about God's character when it comes to something that we need every day. You go, what's that? Repentance. When we've done wrong, we need a statement like this as we go to God and confess our sins and begin wondering, is he a God that will be moved to forgive us our sins? Is he going to uh, give us the lifting of that burden, the taking away of the guilt of that sin? Are we going to have that or is God not going to do that? But passages of scripture like this remind us of the character of God that he does forgive sins. See, what happens in Nehemiah is that you have this celebration going on that the nation has uh, successfully built the walls of Jerusalem. And you go through chapter 6 and you have this counting of the people that are there and a part of this. And then the nation gathers themselves together on a feast day and they're celebrating. And you have uh, Ezra who gets up in chapter 8 and he begins to read the word of god chapter 8 and verse 5 it says that ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people and when he opened it the people stood up and ezra blessed the lord the great god and all the people answered amen amen with the lifting of their hands and bowed their heads and worshiped the lord and so verse 8 so what happens is this is that these individuals along with ezra read in the book of the law of god distinctly gave the sense and caused them to understand you kind of go what happens here the nation of israel at this time many of the people had never heard the word of god sounds like it might have been passed down by tradition or people had passages that were in their head but the nation itself it didn't seem like these individuals that had returned from the babylonian exile being carried off in the captivity and they had come back and were living in this city they really had never heard the word of god because when they start hearing the word of god there is a response that in verse number nine it says nehemiah which is in which is the 
Tershaph and Ezra the priest, the scribe, and the Levites that taught the people said unto the people, This is a day holy unto the Lord your God. Mourn not, nor weep, for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. I mean, he, as the word of God's read, they realize they've missed out on understanding certain things and hearing things and knowing things about their God. And so they're crying on a day that had been set aside for feasting, of celebration. And so the, the challenge there is as they hear the word of God, don't, you know, don't fast right now. Don't repent right now. Rejoice in the things that God is doing. But then you, you begin to find they continue to read the law and they go forth and, and they celebrate certain feasts, the, the booths, uh, the festival of tabernacles that they hadn't celebrated since the nation of Israel had actually come into the land under Joshua. They'd failed to do this. But they finally get to an occasion where in verse or chapter 9 and verse 1, it says this, Now on the 20th and 4th day of the month, the children of Israel assembled with fasting and with sackcloth and earth upon them, and the seed of Israel separated themselves from all the strangers and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their father. And they stood up in their place and read in the book of the law, the Lord their God, one-fourth part of the day and another fourth part they confessed and, and worshiped the Lord their God. And as you go, there's this occasion where they do get together and they hear certain things where they have failed God. And they're confessing their sins as they hear the reading of the word and they find out that certain things, yes, are wrong. That God had declared that this doesn't match his character and his people shouldn't live like this. And they begin to realize we have failed time and time again. We have missed serving God as a people that display his glory. In fact, some of the issues as you look what's going on in Nehemiah's time is that you had individuals here that had married into the culture around them that they were looking like the culture around them because they were married to individuals that weren't Jews. They, they were people who were outsiders and had different gods. You, you find that they're doing some of the very things that God commanded them not to do. You'll find the nation uh, eventually working on days they shouldn't be and doing things and, uh, that they should not. But at this point, as they hear the reading of God's word, they're standing there hearing this. They're having it well, part of the time, confessing their sins, as it says, and they're worshiping God. You can't come into the presence of God and, and be one who has got unclean hands. But then what happens is that you have a group of Levites that stand up. And what they begin to rehearse is that the history of the nation of Israel and God's people has been one where there was need of confession of sin time and time and time again. That what they're doing here, confessing their sins as a nation, is not unusual in the history of the nation of Israel, where they had done things against God. 
And so you, you see them as they start this prayer in verse number 5, all these Levites that get together, and they say this, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou madest the heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all the things therein, the seas and all that is therein. Thou preservest them all, and the host of heaven worship thee. Now, as you read this, they're, they're going through, you know, they're starting off in Genesis here. They're praying this prayer, and they're going through the stories that you find in the Word of God. Verse 7, Thou art the Lord God, who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of the Ur of the Chaldees, gave him the name of Abraham, and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites, to give it, I say, to his seed, and hast performed thy words, for thou art righteous. You did what you said. And thou didst see the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heardest their cry by the Red Sea, and showedest signs and wonders upon Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all the people of this land. For thou knewest that they dealt proudly against them. So didst thou get a, thee a name, as it is this day. And thou didst divide the sea before them. So that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land, and their persecutors uh, were thrust thrust into the deep as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, thou ledest them in the day by a cloudy pillar, in the night by a pillar of fire, to give them light in the way wherein they should go. Thou camest down upon the Mount Sinai, and spakest with them from heaven, and gave them right judgments, and true laws, and good statutes and commandments." You know, given the Ten Commandments is a good thing of God. You made us known unto them the Holy Sabbath and commandest them precepts, statutes by the hand of Moses thy servant and gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst and promised them that they should go to possess the land which thou hast sworn to give them. Verse 16. But... They and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not unto thy commandments and refused to obey. Neither were mindful, mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but they hardened their necks and in their rebellious, uh, rebellion appointed a captain returned to their bondage. Okay, they failed God. But here then look at the end of verse 17. But thou art a God ready to pardon. And that's what they start with. But they're quoting this passage from, from uh, excuse me, Exodus 34. Thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and of great kindness, and forsookest them not. Yea, when they made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee out of Egypt and has wrought great uh, provocations. Yet thou, in thy manifold mercies, forsookest them not in the wilderness. The pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein thou should goest. Thou gavest them also thy good spirit to instruct them, and withheldest not manna from their mouth, and gavest them water for their drink. Yea, forty years didst thou sustain them in the wilderness, so that they lacked nothing. Their clothes waxed not old, their feet swelled not. And then it just kind of goes through. The rest of this is just simply talking about what God did in the nation of Israel. Now, 
what you have here is a picture of God's abundance of goodness and truth. Here you have a nation that fails God, but he does forgive them. He does not hold it against them, and he gives them good things. When they came in their failure, and you have Moses for the people uh, present their sin and confess their sin before God, God gives them forgiveness. You say, why do they get forgiveness? Because God is all of these things. He's gracious, he's merciful, he's long-suffering. God forgives sin. And for these people in Nehemiah's time, they remember this statement about God, that God is like this. And as they are coming to confess their sins and they go through this, and they begin to talk about this, look at verse uh, 30 said, yet many years didst thou forbear them, dealt with the nation of Israel, and testified against them by the spirit of thy prophets. Yet would they not give ear? Therefore gavest thou them into the hand of the people of the lands. Nevertheless, for thy great mercy's sake, thou didst not utterly consume them, nor forsake them, for thou art a gracious and merciful God. And then here's the application. Now therefore, our God, the great and mighty, the terrible God, that idea of terrible is not, you know, he's a bad God. It's the idea he's an awe-inspiring God. He's incredible. Who keepest covenant mercy, let not all the troubles seem little before thee that that hath come upon us and our kings and our princes and our priests and our prophets and our fathers and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria to this day. Howbeit thou art just in all that is brought upon us, for thou hast done right and we have done wickedly. Neither have our kings, our princes, our priests, our fathers kept the law nor hearkened unto thy commandments and thy testimonies wherewith thou didst testify against them. Verse 36, Behold, we are servants this day, and for the land that thou gavest unto their fathers to eat the fruit thereof and the good thereof, behold, we are servants in it. It yieldeth much increase in the kings whom thou set over us because of our sins, also have dominion over our bodies and over our cattle at their pleasure, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, our princes, Levites, priests, and seal unto it. See, what they come to this statement at the end, they just simply go, you're a God and you've been extremely good. You brought us back from people who took us into captivity and we deserved it. I mean, they deserve the judgment there. But what they recognize is this, is that this is a God that will be with them and extend mercy to them. And what they have is this agreement and this covenant is that they bind themselves together and say, we will follow this law that God has given us. We will be his people. They're really renewing what they said at Mount Sinai, where God said, will you be my people? And they said, we'll be your people. And then you had them, uh, then, then God said, I will be your God. And they're renewing the covenant, the agreement that we will be your people. You have been faithful to us. You have forgiven our sins. You have been gracious to us. And even our sins right now, what we're coming and saying is this, we will be your people. What they understood was that God was a God that was merciful and they saw it from their history. 
and that God forgives sin again and again and again and again and again. He does forgive iniquity. He does forgive transgression. He does forgive sin. Now, as we, we quote that, you kind of go, well, what, is all, what do all those terms mean? Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Anything that's an offense against God, God forgives it. And that's really what it means, uh, is that any type of transgression, God forgives this. And what the nation here is recognizing, yes, even we ourselves had failed like our fathers, but what we're doing is we're coming to you and we're, well, saying we're your people and we are looking for your forgiveness. We failed you as a people. We didn't know your word. We didn't know what was required of us. And so you have this confession See, it gives us an encouragement that God, when he deals with us, that we can look back on the history of our Old Testament and even the New Testament and see him forgiving people over and over and over again. And sometimes repeatedly. Now, that doesn't mean we just sin over and over again because we know God's going to forgive us. And that's rather presumptuous. But the fact is, is that God is one who will forgive sins. He'll do it. No matter what sin it is. And you look at the listing in Nehemiah, there were some horrible things that the people of Israel did. Wretched things. But yet God was willing to forgive their sins as a people. So you just see from Nehemiah that Okay, is this really true that God forgives sin? And the answer is, you look at this story and you have this quote that God is of this character and you have illustration of time and time again where God has to forgive the sins of the nation of Israel, and he does. But then you get to another book, and I want us to turn over to the book of Joel, the prophet Joel. Because this statement of God plays a major role in another time where the nation of Israel has failed God. Say, where is Joel at? Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah. It's in that framework there. The book of Joel is an interesting book. We know nothing about the framework of it. We know the author that he is, as you read the first verse, the son of Pethuel. But beyond that, there is no time factor in this book. They can't figure out if this was a, a, that Joel was a prophet in the previous occasions of the nation of Israel in the sense of before they were carried off in the Babylon captivity. There are other things that indicate the fact that this book may have been written afterwards. You know, everyone's got a guess as to when it is. But in the story, you find something that's going on. It's an event in the history of the nation of Israel that was traumatic for the whole nation. See, sometimes what we have difficulty in figuring out is when bad things happen to us, whether it is just God doing something or if it's punishment. I mean, is that not true? Bad things happen in your life and you're going, what have I done wrong? What is God trying to fix in my life? Is this because I've done something wrong? 
Now, that is when evil comes into our life or difficulty comes in our life. It's great for us to evaluate what's going on in our life, but when bad things happen to us, it's not always the case that God is frustrated with us about sin. You go, how do I know that? You've got a whole book about this. The book of Job is a book where you have an individual who God declares to Satan is pleasing to him. That by his life, he eschews sin. You go, what does that mean? He shies away from it. He gives it a wide berth, but he is upright and that he is good. And you say, what does that mean? Well, he's upright because he deals right with every individual he comes across and he's got a right relationship with God. He's that type of individual. And yet you see in the first two chapters, the devastating things that happen to him. And you go, is God judging him? And you might think that if you didn't have the commentary that God is talking to Satan and going, I'll allow you to prove certain things, but I'm going to show you something by my servant Job that there is uh, the possibility that someone will serve me for nothing. And so in Job's case, it's not that bad things come into his life because he's a sinner. That's the problem of his friends. They assume that that bad things happen to bad people and good things only happen to good people. I mean, his friends are trying, as you read the whole story, they're trying to figure out what Job had done so that they don't repeat this. He's the best person they know of. So they're trying to figure, why would God judge a person for you know, like this? He must have done something really wrong. And that's not... I mean, that's why Job spends the whole book going, I would love to appear before God and plead my case because I, I, I don't know of anything that I've done worthy of God's punishment. In his case, it wasn't. But when you read Joel chapter 2 and the events there, the nation of Israel should have understood what was going on as the judgment of God. And you say, what is going on in this story? Well, look at verse 2. Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. That which the palmer worm hath left, hath the locust eaten, and that which the locust hath left, hath the canker worm eaten, and that which the canker worm hath left, hath the caterpillars eaten. Kind of go what is all of that well what you're describing being described here is that the nation of israel had an event where they had a plague of locusts on a scale unseen now for us it's with our generation of all sorts of chemicals and everything else that in our culture this is not something that we regularly see but you can still see this type of thing happening in in africa and india and places like this where you have locusts coming and they assault a field and you say what is that assault like well Look at this, verse 5, God describes it first of all this way, Awake ye drunkards and weep, how all ye drinkers of wine, because the new wine, for it is cut off from your mouth. They've come and eaten all the fruit off the trees. Uh, for a nation has come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of lion, and hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste, and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean, and bare, and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white." 
I mean, you look at this, the field in verse number uh, 10, the field is wasted, the land mourneth, the corn is wasted, the new wine is dried up, the oil languisheth. And you go through and you find different statements made here about what it is like. But then it it kind of backs away for a little bit and is a call for the nation of Israel to repent. The priests do the work they're supposed to be doing in worshiping God, but then it goes back to what the event is. Look at verse number two. Blow ye a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm in my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the earth land tremble. For the day of the Lord cometh, for it is nigh at hand, a day of darkness and of gloominess, a day of clouds and thick darkness, as the morning spread upon the mountains. A great people is strong. There hath not been ever the like, neither shall be any more after it, even to the years of many generations. A fire devoureth before them. And behind them the flame burneth. The land is as the garden of Eden before them. Behind them... A desolate wilderness, yea, and nothing shall escape them. The appearance of them is as the appearance of horses, as of horsemen. So they run. I mean, this is talking about what this locust army is like. It darkens the sky. It comes along and there's this pristine garden type scene that you have here. And then after they come through, it's like a wasteland wilderness desert. There's nothing living. I mean, these individuals, verse 5, the sound of them is like the noise of chariots in the tops of mountains. Shall they leap like the noise of flame of fire that devoureth the stubble? As a strong people in battle array, before their face the people shall be much pained. All their face shall gather blackness. They shall run like mighty men. They shall climb the wall like men of war. They shall march everyone on his ways, and they shall not break their ranks. Neither shall one thrust another. They shall walk everyone in his path. And when they fall upon the sword, they shall not be wounded. They shall run run to and fro in the city they shall run upon the wall they shall climb in the houses they shall enter in the windows like a thief the earth shall quake before them the heavens shall tremble the moon the sun and moon shall be darkened and the stars shall withdraw their shining and the lord shall utter his voice before his army for his camp is very great he is strong and executeth his word for the day of the lord is a great and very terrible who and this is the question who can abide it See, what you have going on in the nation of Israel is God has allowed this army of locusts, and it's not an accident because it says here, God is leading this army. It's his army. It's not some uh, ecological disaster that accidentally happened or anything like that. No, God by intention has brought these individual creatures on the land that they darken the sky, they deafen with their noise, they don't break ranks, I mean, you could perhaps crush one of them or take care of a few of them, but there's thousands that would take their place. And God is leading this army. And the question is, who can abide this? Who can actually last through something like this? You say, well, what... What is Joel getting at when he is talking through this event of God and what does he do with this ultimately? And it's a challenge to the people. You need to repent because you need to get ready because God's going to have an even greater day come. Because you look at chapter 3, and we aren't going to spend time there, but it's going to talk about an event where an army actually does invade the land. Where an army actually comes in and invades the land of Israel and brings it to a crushing point, uh, yet future to our time. 
The events that we would find in the tribulation as the nation of Israel is uh, attacked by the Antichrist and the armies of the world, and they're brought to uh, this pressing down upon them, and all the nations come into the land. But in the midst of this, God goes, this is a small thing. I've allowed this small army to go through. And what I want you to do is to respond to me in repentance because I brought this because you failed to be my people. You failed to act like my people. The priests that had been uh, the ones who should have been leading in the worship of God are the very ones who are not doing this. They are failing at this. And so what you have in verse number 12 is what Joel says. This event is not an accident. It's not something that happened uh, by happenstance. No, God is the one who brought this event. He brought it to bring judgment on you for you to understand you need to change your attitude and change your ways. You need to repent. Because in verse 12, here's what it says. Therefore also now saith the Lord, turn ye even to me with all of your heart and with fasting and with weeping and with mourning and rend your heart and not your garments and turn to the lord your god why do you want to turn to a god like this because verse 13 at the end for he is gracious and merciful slow to anger and of great kindness and repenteth him of the evil Why should we turn to a God like this with mourning and sorrow? I mean, this is true repentance. Okay, some people would put a show of repentance on. And what they would do in ancient culture is that when you were sorrowful, you would tear your clothes. And the reason you did this is because you were doing an outward show saying, listen, I'm in great sorrow here. And God says, don't don't go about just tearing your clothes no what you need to do is rend your heart you need to in your own soul not outwardly realize that your sin is an offense against god that what you've done has been a challenge to who he is and what he has given you over all these years and what you need to do is come to this point where you turn to the lord your god what you've been doing is wandering like sheep you've gone your own way what you need to do is turn back to him and you say how do i turn back to him well you're the one who's drawn away from god you need to draw nigh to god the new testament in james chapter 4 talks about humbling yourselves and cleansing your hands ye sinners draw nigh to god and he will what draw nigh to you and that's a statement of truth if you draw nigh to him he will draw nigh to you it's not that god will go nope i don't want to draw nigh to you no you go why is that how do i know that because i have verses like exodus chapter 34 verse 6 that tell me I have a God that is moved to help me in my need. He's compassionate. He's merciful. And sometimes he's more long-suffering than we even realize when we go our own way that he should have judged us, but no, he holds back that judgment. And this is the God that wants us to turn to him. This is what he's like. He's not an angry God and a frustrated God. No, he's a God that says, I want to be your God. 
I want to be in relation to you. I want to have fellowship with you. And what God does sometimes is puts us through great sorrow. We looked at this in Lamentations last week, that sometimes God puts us through great sorrow for us to suddenly focus on Him. Our sin clouds our vision of Him. It brings distance to Him. And what God sometimes does, as He did in the book of Lamentations, He brought the people to a point where they could only look around and say, how did this happen? Where's God in all of this? And they had to be reminded of the fact, no, your God is every morning showing His faithfulness to you. His mercies mercies are new every morning. This God wants you to turn to Him and delights in you coming to Him. We're talking, it was talking, and I read uh, this uh, also. I was talking to my wife and just discussing this, uh, that Sometimes we think when we come to God in repentance that He's angered and frustrated by that, that He is having to, well, restore a relationship. I mean, this, this is our, our own flesh thinking this, that, you know, okay, I'm coming to God again and asking for forgiveness of sins and repenting of my sin, and that God somehow is in heaven going, ah, Really? And I heard it illustrated this way, what God's character is like. It's much like a doctor who goes into the interior of some jungle region and as he goes there, he's helping out individuals who are sick, unhealthy. And what brings him delight is when those individuals come and he can do something for them. That he can restore them to health. That he can take care of diseases. There's a delight in a doctor to be able to do that. That doctor's not going, I can't believe this. I, you know, why do they keep coming back to me? Why do I get this opportunity to fix people and help them? No, God's not up in heaven going, oh, here comes this person again. And, oh, we have to restore this relationship again. This is so frustrating. No, God's up in heaven and he's waiting for this. He delights in restoring the relationship. He delights in seeing people come to Him where He can show His mercy and He can show His compassion and He can do this. He delights in this. The problem is if the people don't come, they're not going to enjoy this aspect of God's character. Just as those people, if they don't come to the doctor, are going to continue to suffer and they're going to be sick and unhealthy. And times we don't enjoy the blessings of God because we don't come to Him and say, I am wrong and I need help. I'm not right and I need restoration. God delights in forgiving sin. You see here in verse 14, it kind of leaves it in a question mark, but it really shouldn't. Uh, The statement there, who knows if he, referring to God, will return and repent and leave a blessing behind him. You know, we should repent. Who knows if God will do this because we're so unworthy, which is really the attitude of a repentant person. They come to God and they're going, I'm not worthy of the least of your favor. It's like that, that uh, is the story of the publican and the 
the Pharisee and the publican, the tax collector, and the story where the one comes and boldly stands before God and makes all proclamations about how great they are, and then the publican, the tax collector, is off to the side praying to God and beating on himself, and he says, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. I'm not even deserving of the least of your favor. And so it is when a person comes to repentance. It's not that they come and braggadociously say what they're like. No, they come and humbly declare, this is what I'm like. I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm asking for restoration. And what God will do is that he'll forgive iniquity. He'll forgive sin. He'll forgive transgression. He delights in restoring relationships with him. He delights in doing this for people. And as you think, is this a New Testament idea? It is. I was just thinking about this this afternoon, meditating on this, and we have a verse that we oftentimes quote from the New Testament, but it really illustrates how faithful God is to us. 1 John 1, nine says this, if we confess our sins... You say, what's confession? Confession is just simply this. I say the same thing. I say the same thing that God has to say about my sin. If I confess my sins, He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Okay? And there are things when we come to God that we declare to Him, here's where I failed you, and here's where I've gone astray, and here's where I rebelled against you. And what we find is that God is faithful to forgive those type of sins that we declare to Him. But we oftentimes forget the last part because there's an abundance of God's mercy and grace extended. You say, what is that? Well, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And what's the last statement there? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you realize that we sin so much that we forget some of the things that we've done? That we forget some of the offenses that we have against God. And when we come humbly and we're declaring those things, the sins that we know and the transgressions where we've crossed God's line and we come and confess those, you know what God is so gracious to do in His mercy and His kindness is that He cleanses us from all of those sins, even the ones that we have forgotten about because we fail so often. And you say, why does He do this? Because He's abundant in goodness, and in truth. And so as you read a passage like Nehemiah, and you read a passage like Joel, and you see the abundant and numerous times where God shows mercy to people, the things He sometimes does to us is that He is calling us to repent, and that He delights in coming to repentance, in repentance to Him, and that it's in line with His character. So don't run and hide from God. You know, sometimes as kids, that was your hope. I remember getting in trouble as a a child, and there were occasions where I was sent to my room, and I was hoping they would forget I was in the room. I'm hoping Dad doesn't come home, and and that type of thing would happen, the, the normal thing. And sometimes we're like that with God. We're like, I hope He doesn't come. I, you know, He, He's you know, not going to be happy with me and it's not going to go well and he's not going to want to restore fellowship with me. I found out as a father, when a 
father comes and oftentimes has to punish his child, it's not because the father hates his child. No, he punishes his child and he's desiring what? Restoration, fellowship, to be able to show good things and display those to his children. So it is with God. God's the same way with us. We shouldn't run from him, but come to him and confess our sins. And he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins because he is a God that is full of compassion, abundant in goodness and truth. Come to him and find the blessing of this God that he delights in showing himself to be good even to sinners just like you. Good truth. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for your willingness to forgive sins. We don't deserve it. But you do forgive sins. So Lord, may we come realizing we have nothing to give you. And in fact, if we were to look at our life, our sin is so stacked up, piled up. But may we come and understand you are a God that has said you will forgive sins if we come to you. It's because of your son's great sacrifice that we can have ultimate forgiveness of sins and we thank you for Christ's death on the cross that makes that possible. But oftentimes we forget that you've You've declared this. You will forgive our sins and take away iniquities and transgressions and that you will show us good things that we are not deserving of. But many times we miss out on this because we forget the truths of what you've said about yourself. We view you as a hateful God sometimes. Our flesh does that or a mean God or a, care, a careless God, or an uncaring Father, uh, but you're not like that. May we remember passages like Exodus 34. When we sin, that you delight in giving forgiveness. And may we come back and let you restore the relationship, uh, restore unto us, as one, as one passage describes, restore unto us the joy of our salvation. Sometimes we don't have that because of sin. And what you're able to do is to give the blessing and the encouragement and the joy of salvation back when we come in repentance over our sin to you. So Lord, may we find the joy of who you are in times that we repent of our sin. We thank you because we have nothing to offer to you. You're a great God. You're abundant in all things. And we praise you in the name of your Son. Amen.